So uh, because I asked the question, what's our closest link to India? And then my father said, my grandmother, Sujarya, mm-hmm. she was a pregnant woman traveling alone. From the History Watch Project, this is the History Watch podcast series, bringing you up close and personal with history in the real world, with some help from people who know what they're talking about. I'm Audra Dipti, and in today's episode of the History Watch podcast series, you'll hear me in conversation with Gayatra Bahadur, who is a faculty member in the Department of Arts, Culture and Media at Rutgers University. I was lucky enough to meet Gayatra while we were both in Bellagio, Italy, on our Rockefeller writing residency in 2018. The interview was done at the Bellagio Centre, and so would not have been possible without support from the Rockefeller Foundation. Gayatra Bahadur is an accomplished writer and journalist. Her book, Coolie Woman, was shortlisted for Britain's Orwell Prize. Her essays, criticism, and reportage have appeared in the New York Times Book Review, the New York Review of Books, The New Republic, The Nation, Boston Review, and Descent, among others. Her work has been recognized with literary residencies at the McDowell Colony and fellowships from Harvard, the British Library, and the New York Public Library. She has also twice won an award from the New Jersey Council on the Arts for Creative Prose. In this episode of the History Watch podcast series, Gaitra and I discuss the journey of her great-grandmother who traveled pregnant and alone from India to South America to work on the plantations of what was then called British Guyana, but would eventually become the Republic of Guyana. Our conversation includes discussions on the challenges of recovering lost voices and a fascinating discussion on the politics and power of historical memory in the present day. Finally, I would like to remind listeners that they can find updates about the History Watch project on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or by subscribing to our website. For regular updates on our podcast, you can subscribe to the History Watch podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. And now, tune into today's podcast, Finding the Caribbean Kuli Woman, History, Power, and Memory. Well, let's just start then with a simple narrative about your great-grandmother. So she left India when she was 27, and she was four months pregnant and gave birth to my grandfather on the journey to Guyana. Right. Just, so what year was she, sorry? Uh, sorry, 1903. 1903. 1903, towards the end of indenture. Okay. Towards the end of the system. The voyage took three and a half months. She was from Bihar, so quite far from Calcutta. There are a couple of different stories I heard from my aunts about what happened to her. One is that she was on a pilgrimage, so she was going from one holy body of water to another when a recruiter came up to her and essentially kidnapped her. And that's a story that would have made sense because recruiters were paid more for women, as you probably know. Mm -hmm. So there was an incentive to be deceptive and to get them by dishonest means. How old was she again? She was 27. That would have been old (laughs) by the standards of the day and the time Mm -hmm. to be single. When I first heard about this story from my dad, I remember his words exactly. She was a pregnant woman traveling alone. And I was very, very curious about that situation. Mm -hmm. Here's this story about this woman who's by herself. Was there any hint as to the pregnancy, was it? There was nothing. My father just knew that she gave birth on the ship and that she was by herself. 
So, I mean, if the kidnap story was true, she could have been married and just separated from her family. She and could have been raped. raped. She, she could, could have, have been raped. That's also a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, she could have been a widow because a, a lot of the, the women who, who migrated indentured were widows. So, as I was saying, I was, I was taken aback by her story. It seemed so unusual, so exceptional. Mm-hmm. But once I started looking into it, I saw that she wasn't exceptional. Mm-hmm. And two-thirds of the women who migrated were, were not traveling with husbands. And that year she left, 75% of them were not traveling with husbands. Mm-hmm. And the background to all this is that colonial policy dictated that the ships couldn't leave port unless they had 40 women aboard for every 100 men. Um, and this, of course, has to be placed in the broader context of uh, what the institution of slavery did to family. Mm-hmm. And concerned that indenture was slavery by another name, so there was some sense that they shouldn't repeat the mistakes of the past um, and 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 have a certain number of women. The, these are all historical forces that intersect with a private family story, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, these are all important to try to figure out what her what, what yeah. her backstory might might have been, because there's no way to know definitively. 2003, I went to Guyana just to check it out. I went to the archives and found Sujaria, that was her name, uh, her emigration pass, which gave me all kinds of information about her. That's how I know she was 27. That's how I know she was four months pregnant, because it was scrawled on the top of the pass, along with the name of the plantation she was being sent to. At some point later down the line, it wasn't then, I found my grandfather's birth certificate. It was sort of baby born board pass, but it's important because it has the name of father on it. Oh, does it really? Yes. Deodar was the name of his father, and on the document it says where's location of father. So it says in Ind, and the rest of it is born. Mm-hmm. So in India. Again, I mean, documents only get you so far. Mm-hmm. You still end up having to speculate around them. So was there ever any other information about your grandfather? Just anecdotal. The anecdotal stuff was from my aunt. Around the name, my grandfather's name, Lal Bahadur. But my aunt told me that he was named Bahadur because Sujaria had a brother named Bahadur. Okay. So again, it's hard to know. The documents are unreliable. People in your family who tell you stories are unreliable too, not because they're dishonest or they're trying to... But it's how many generations later. Right, it's just Mm -hmm. stories that are passed on and you know Mm -hmm. the nature of stories, you know, you tell, it's like a game of telephone, it Mm -hmm. gets changed in the process. And and it gets reinterpreted, right? Mm -hmm. In each, uh, with each generation, what it means, what it means to you may not have been what it meant to somebody three generations earlier. Right, right. Yeah. She died the year before her son did. She died in 1963. Mm-hmm. Lal Bahadur, her son who was born on the boat, died in 1964. And a lot of people remember that she was very sharp tongued. I find it interesting that actually the family's aware that she was pregnant because it seems to me that would be one of the things one might try to hide in the retelling of a family history. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yes. Well, I never, in a sense, it was hidden because nobody told that story at family gatherings. But, it wasn't like a story that she... After she gave birth, there was no reason to extend, to tell anybody else the story after. Well, yes, you're right. She could have just said, we were born a year it. after. Yeah, she know. could have lied to her son about it. Right. So she didn't. So what does that tell us? Well, this is it. This is one of yeah. those rare details that we're not bound to know, but we yeah. do know. But again, I... 
only know about this because I asked. Yes. No, so, it's not like this was part of the family lore. It wasn't like at a wake or a <laughs> wedding, people would be telling this story about her. They didn't. I never heard it until I was 22. Right. Because I asked. So uh, Because I asked the question, what's our closest link to India? And then my father said, my grandmother, Sujarya, she was a pregnant woman traveling alone. So she came over and she ended up on plantation. And more. Now, this is another great story, which I got from my aunt, mm-hmm. and um, it's this. So she was on the boat by herself. She was pregnant. She befriended a couple, and they were all sent to the same plantation, and they shared a room. And the wife in this couple couldn't have children. So my great-grandmother had a child with that man. And, they, and it became... And she was transferred at some point after the birth of that exactly, child, yeah. that a girl. She was transferred from Enmore Plantation, which is not far from the capital, to way off deep into the countryside, to Rose Hall Plantation. And there was a, a reason why transfers were, were done. There were many reasons. Usually somebody was transferred if they were a troublemaker, if they were so leading an uprising. Right. Um, but another really common reason for transfers was to remove quote-unquote seducers. This is, again, like colonial government terminology from a bad situation. Because there was a shortage of women, and you know this history very well, there were was competition for the women and uh, violence when men were rejected because there were, again, 40 women for every 100 men among the indentured. So usually it was, if there was a fight of some kind... It would be two men over a woman. Right, but in this case, it was one man and two women. I wonder if there was some kind of a problem, and maybe that's the reason why she was sent But again, this is another story. I'm surprised the family knows. So I'm just thinking, that is something she must have told somebody so it's become part of the the oral history right and so what happened was when she was transferred she took the girl she had with the the man so she took the girl and she left behind my grandfather at Enmore Plantation who was the first child my my grandfather Lal Bahadur she left him back the story I get is that and partly from my father partly from my aunt is that he stayed there and he took care of this couple in their old age as if he were their son he took care of them, and then roughly when he was 14, after they had died, he himself moved from Enmore to Rose Hall. He was a teenager and had a first relationship there, like his first marriage or whatever. And yeah. there's another side of the family <laughs> who I found out about. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very complicated family tree. It's complicated, but not uncommon, these kind of things. And so my aunt, who told me some of these stories at the uh, at the end of it, she said, but don't put that in the book, okay? So I did. But I mean, I told her that I would be, and I yeah. told her why I would be, because mm-hmm. there's no reason for shame. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. these were the circumstances that brought them to this place mm-hmm. and this position in their lives. You should see it in a way, a form of ingenuity. They were able to adapt and recreate and recreate family, really, because most of these people had been uprooted from their families. And uh, there my grandmother was with these two people who she'd formed some sort of a bond with. Um, mm-hmm. She basically gave, in a way, she gave her son to them so that in their old age they would be taken care of yes so they were playing with notions of family here they were adapting it to their circumstances Mm -hmm. so they were adapting but it also speaks to the very complicated way in which plantations organize these people and put them in a situation where they had to adapt a lot of these plantations were really just old slave quarters right they were organized the exact 
exactly the yes, same. Yes, they way. were the very same buildings in many cases, yes. and so they would be barracks. So it's not organized they, for family. It's no, organized for laborers. Organized for a warehousing, basically, mm-hmm. and not not organized for privacy either, because uh, they would have walls that only went up so far for mm-hmm. ventilation. Mm-hmm. So you could hear everything that's happening in the next room over in this barracks. Okay, so she went to Rose Hall. So she went to Rose Hall, and there um, my aunt told me that at that point she didn't have to work. Okay, so this again raises another question, (laughs) places for me to speculate. She didn't have to work in the fields, that she worked as a Keilani, which is a childminder. She worked as a childminder. She didn't have to go out into the fields at that point. So this is a privileged job to have on the plantation. It's one that older women had or favorite women had. She would have been about 30 then, Mm -hmm. so not particularly old. And overseers had their favorites. She was quite pretty. That's mm-hmm. something that they all emphasized okay. by those standards mm-hmm. and the color-struck South Asian standards. So she was light-skinned and light-eyed. So she was pretty. And she ended up she ended up with a, th- a third child by a third man who was the, a driver on that plantation. So a kind okay. of sub-overseer figure. So it suggests... Well, I don't know what it's a relationship with power, actually. Yes, with a certain subaltern figure in that hierarchy, but mm-hmm. still someone with power. The mm-hmm. drivers had an immense amount of control over people's lives, right? And they could reward favorites. Mm-hmm. So she and and he had a third child in Guyana. I don't know if she had a family back in India. Mm-hmm. I think she probably did. And they moved off the plantation together at some point to a house in Cumberland Village, which is where I grew up. So they made the move off the plantation. He was a driver. He was also a moneylender, which is also a both powerful and exploitative figure on the mm-hmm. plantations, mm-hmm. right? And he drove cows. They sold milk. And that's what she did. She would she would make yogurt from the milk and, and sell it. And in sell the village. it. I mean, they, they made their money from cow minding, basically, which was his caste occupation. A hair cow minder? Yeah. Yeah. And she was upper caste. She was Brahmin, mm-hmm. according to those documents. And according to the way she raised her son mm-hmm. and the way he raised my dad. And actually, I mean, in terms of caste... There appeared to be an equal distribution, high, middle, and low. And it seems, at least from my very um, telescope look at one year, that a lot of the Brahmins who went were actually women. And that makes sense because Brahmin widows, they had fewer options in life, than, mm-hmm. paradoxically, than lower caste widows because they were not supposed to remarry. Whereas as a, a Dalit, you could... There was less concern about regulating the sexuality of, of, da- of Dalit, Dalit women. Exactly. Yeah. But this now raises another question mm-hmm. that's interesting, too, because because it talks about the way in which the caste system can't be sustained in any authenticity no, in this new plantation context. Right. I mean, the very act of leaving erases caste, according to Hindu orthodoxy. Crossing the dark waters of the Kalapani is a caste-annihilating act, mm-hmm. journey. And then there you have the physical conditions of the ship, mm-hmm. where you can't maintain any uh, rules relating to food, eating from separate batches of food, because central to caste is this notion of pollution, right? Mm-hmm. Untouchability. Can't touch, you can't eat with, you can't sleep with. Mm-hmm. 
yeah. someone of another caste. Those are again like annihilating acts. Right. But on the ship, all of that just went out the window completely. And on the plantation also. We were talking about the barracks before. Everyone, mm-hmm. they lived with each other side by side. Whereas in India, in a village, Dalits would, would be uh, segregated to the outskirts. They mm-hmm. wouldn't even be allowed to be in the village. But so on the plantation, obviously all of that goes out the window. And because of the shortage of women and the sexual dynamics, also people don't really pay and, attention and, to those rules. And then arguably, they're human beings. So in these circumstances, without the social infrastructure to support this kind of separation, but also you're not living and working in conditions that are, quite frankly, humane. People start to develop bonds across... New solidarities. Yeah. It's just like what I said, they became... They adapted family, and that means drawing new lines of friendship and solidarity across... Exactly, reimagining these relationships for the new context in the Caribbean. And, of course, they're all taken there as manual laborers. Okay, Of course, there are people who did really hold very strongly to an upper caste identity and used it for gain I would say in in some cases oh why wouldn't they yeah? right. like if you had a if you came over as a brahmin you, that is your one thing to cling to even if you had broken every single solitary rule that would allow you to keep your brahmin status you know you right. you would marry sleep with work with eat with people that weren't Brahmin or that were lower caste. Why would you give that up in this new context? Um, The priestly function, which means material gain. Anyway, so she is now... So she's off the plantation. Mm-hmm. And they, they have basically a family business, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the move to the village means the recreation of a lot of really oppressive institutions from mm-hmm. village India, mm-hmm. such as child marriage, mm-hmm. such as the extended family unit, which is an economic unit as much as it is about Social relationships. Family, yeah. Right, so uh, there she is working in the village, and another of her granddaughters who remembered them told me that the man that she married was a, a, a pretty hard man, right? And he had a stick which he would use to drive the mm-hmm. cattle. And so this granddaughter of Sujari has told me that he also used to beat her with the stick, that he would beat her bad, yeah, and that he would maul her behind. Is Those were the words she used. Another aunt from my mom's side of the family who had a shop in the same village, so she remembered Sujari coming into the shop uh, with her husband she remembers that she had a really strong personality. Right? Mm-hmm. She was a very outspoken lady and lively, right? So they would tell stories, they would talk, and the husband didn't seem to like it very much. So he would say chuk, which means shut up. <laughs> Granted, they're off the plantation now when she may have been in this abusive relationship, but it does make me want to ask the question about, or think about, sorry, the ways in which plantations themselves reproduce violence. Because a lot of the, the sort of narratives around violence on these plantations among indentured laborers, it is articulated as this is their culture, this is what mm-hmm. they do, right, this right. is 
patriarchy at its finest and mm-hmm. on but really the plantation itself was a space of violence right. and and was organized in a way I mean it functioned on violence the getting these people to from be it slaves or be it indentured laborers they weren't working 40 hours so a week yes yes to discipline bad behavior and uh, there has been work done um, by sociologists at the University of Guyana in the 80s Prasad and Dams mm-hmm. linking uh, the violence of the plantation to violence against both Indian and African women mm-hmm. in Guyana. I think that they're both both factors are yeah. at play. I mean, there there so is patriarchy to be well, contended with. But that's, the patriarchy could manifest itself in a variety of ways, right? So, to, re- to reinforce your point, though, Prabhu Mohapatra, he has an article that I absolutely loved when I was doing my piece on uh, Indo-Afro relations, where he talks about the way in which they talk about violence against Indian women as if it was just something, all, he didn't use these words obviously, but it, as if it was just in the DNA of these people. Mm-hmm. So no matter what happens, what as if culture isn't fluid, as if culture doesn't mm-hmm. change in different spaces and in different contexts. And so the explanation was, oh, they left India as abusive people and they were inserted here and then they were just abusive again mm-hmm. without thinking about the context. So It's there. I think, you know, it's real in a way that cultural context well, cannot me, be so, completely and entirely. No, yeah, so this is what I would say, though. I'd say that because culture is fluid and whatnot, certain environments can allow certain tendencies, certain traits to magnify uh, or absolutely, and dissipate, also disappear. Absolutely. So there was an interaction between culture and um, the political economy of the plantation. Mm-hmm. And another thing I would say is that in reaction to the amorality of the plantation, I think in the indenture turned to religion in a way that you see this dynamic working in all immigrant communities or diaspora communities mm-hmm. when they are trying to hold on to a sense of self or reconstruct a sense of self. One of one of the paths to that is through religion mm-hmm. and there's an intensification of religion and I, I feel that that also was at work. We're trying to get her trajectory. She had more children? That was it. Three children born in Guyana, two conceived in Guyana, three different men. But what, what is interesting, so we, when we, we say it like that, three children born in Guyana, three different men, that goes against the grain of all collective memory about Indian women and, and their natural, I'm talking about popular ideas about what it means about Indian womanhood, and their right. natural tendency to be pious or to uh-huh. be... But there are two, aren't there? It's funny the way stereotypes work, mm-hmm. because there's usually the stereotype and then the antithesis, which is also its own stereotype, because mm-hmm. in the Caribbean, I mean, there is also a stereotype that Indian women are hot, right? They're, uh, they're hot-blooded, rather. It, because it comes up in, in soca and sh- songs also, right? But it, no, it comes up that way because because it's seen as strange. There, there's a reason why... It's Marajan. Yeah, but, it's, but it, is, it is the Afro-Caribbean perception of the Indian woman, right? Mm-hmm. This is not the way the Indian community 
might articulate. I'm talking. Let's not talk about today. Anything might mm-hmm. any mask could play today. I can't speak for today, but traditionally speaking, you know, that is an Afro-Caribbean rep, male representation of what the Indian woman. Uh, you mean the hot-blooded one? Or well, of a beautiful. Uh, well, no, of an Indian woman in a party. Like this is is almost because they are saying that we don't really have access to these women. We're doing this. We're crossing a line. You know, isn't this interesting? Oh my God, she's beautiful. You know, this is like a rare thing to have access to this. Mm-hmm, right. You know, and not just, and it's not a, a woman from Port of Spain. It's some woman who's, you know, a doula hen, who's some country hidden Indian woman. But that is an Afro-Caribbean perception. So if we're talking about the conversations that take place in the Indo, yes, among the Indian community. that's a very fair point. Yes, yeah. yeah. The stereotype of themselves or the narrative. And what their women, what, they, what their daughters to be, yeah, who exactly. these women are. Right. It's yes. something else. When I talked about the move off of the plantation into the village and the sort of recreation of some patriarchal institutions, important part of that was also reshaping or reclaiming, mm-hmm. you know, reclaiming that image of the Indian woman mm-hmm. in her chastity. And that's precisely it. This is what and that this is what was passed on to mm-hmm. me through my mother and my grandmother. I mean, the mm-hmm. ways that we're supposed to behave and how you should carry yourself. But it's based on obviously this is uh, this is how memory works, right? Mm-hmm. So we create memories that serve us exactly. in the present, right? And so the memory that was created to you know regulate the sexuality of young Indian women was one that they come from a long line of super chaste uh, <laughs> Indian women. And meantime, all our nannies were were you know. <laughs> At least, I mean, well, they were survivors. They, would have been, they were survivors, they and, were, but they would have been described by outsiders uh, or people who did not understand as misbehaving, right? Yeah, yeah. But they were really just independent human beings and survivors. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, with the plantation economy would not have allowed because it didn't encourage family and stability and all these things. It would it would be difficult, if not impossible for some of them to have held those kind of relationships the ones that are in the imagination of course in the historical imagination right. by the way there's a great great side story about the couple mm-hmm. <laughs> left back at Enmore mm-hmm. um, coming to their daughter's wedding but basically the daughter gets married so this the girl is that's growing up with your grandma with your great grandmother right okay. and raised by her by her and her new husband, mm-hmm. right? And they're they're throwing the wedding. Mm-hmm. This man is paying for it, Dilchand, mm-hmm. um, and Shuratan, <laughs> the man she met on the ship, and his wife. They come because they want to give her a present because this is her biological father, but they won't enter the house because they feel like it's not their place. And Dilchand says, "You have every right," and lets him in. And so in a situation where you would expect conflict, there was, again, accommodation among these group of people recreating their lives in a new place under difficult circumstances, and they were okay with each other. So this isn't the story from the archives about wife murders and jealousy. This is a different story. That's exactly it, and about the way in which they imagine their kinship and, and had these kind of relationships. That's fascinating, actually.
But your point about about memory is really very interesting because I was just talking about how documents fail us because there are no diaries, letters, mm-hmm. uh, memoirs from the women who survived this experience, just like there are no memoirs by women who survived the Middle Passage. So they their story gets told to us by others, usually mm-hmm. white men, usually in positions of power over them. So any documents we find related to their experiences are necessarily flawed. Of right? course. And I mean, so to be clear, any document we ever find is always flawed. Sure. But we have an added problem now of not having these sources, of, period. Nothing right. to even... No balance. There's absolutely no balance. I was reading an article, two articles actually. One's by Deborah Thomas in Small Axe. And one is a very short piece by David Scott. And, and they both talk with the, about the business of counter-archives. How is it? How do we write histories? Mm-hmm. How do we tell stories? Yeah. Given that, to draw on Michelle Rolf Trio, given that power dictates the way in which history is produced, it's, we're, we're not aware of it a lot. Mm-hmm. We just think, oh, we go to the archives, we get documents. Right. Oh, there are a few voices missing. But it's, it's a lot more complicated than that. And so what are the ways in which we develop counter-archives to uncover the stories mm-hmm. like those of your great-grandmother? And this is why your, your point is, uh, is so fascinating about historical memory, because it is the counter-archive, right? Our family histories, the oral histories, uh, the folk songs, they're also flawed. There is also, in a sense, a propaganda of the self built in mm-hmm. to those mm-hmm. memories. So our counter-archive is also slippery. <laughs> but between the two, we might be able to find a space between the two, yes. where we can create something. You know, between the written word left by the colonizers or the person that was in a position to write down things that the illiterate mm-hmm. uh, couldn't write, and then the stories we have. Mm-hmm. And there's chemistry between those two, the archive and the counter-archive. In that piece that you had sent me, too, you talked a bit about the way in which you can make silences work for you. How did you try to make the silences work for you as you put this together? We don't have their stories in their own words because, for the most part, they could not read and write English, certainly, mm-hmm. and probably not many um, Indian languages either. So that's that's power. Mm-hmm. That's powerlessness. But to turn it around, <laughs> uh, you can also maybe ask if it's a sign of their control over their own stories. Oral histories with indentured women coming from Fiji, there were only a few, um, and whenever women were asked about certain aspects of their lives, they would say it was hard, period. They wouldn't mm-hmm. get into the details of it. So that's a form of silence that they exercised, and there are two ways to look at that, right? I mean, they're so traumatized they can't talk about it, or withholding information withholding information it's my my story my right to tell it or not to tell it but she died in 1963 and i know that she was blind and she had this enormous brood of grandchildren to take care of her mm-hmm. um, and her son who made a promise that he would do her one-year work, which is a a religious ceremony for Hindus that happens one year after someone dies. He lived long enough to do it, but just long enough. 
And then he died. And then he died in 1964. And those two years, 1963 and 1964, were perhaps the worst years in Guyana's modern political history because they were years of a whole lot of inter-ethnic violence, so, right. which is the subject of the book that I'm working on now and learning about. So I can only think of them in this context. Mm -hmm. It's 1963, it's 1964, what's happening around them. And I know that my grandfather, he had helped found the Mandir, the Hindu temple in the village. So he, through the Mandir, hosted some of the refugees from Wismar, which is a town in the inter in Guyana's interior where the, the Indian population was driven out through arson and rape and there were five people killed the 2,2500 Indians who were driven out were given shelter all across Guyana by different communities my father remembers that that some of them live in a, in a property that my grandfather owned my father was 11 at the time but he uh, he remembers that right that's the, one of the last things that he did Lal Bahadur son of a hero <laughs> is he sheltered those refugees which brings us back to memory in a way and the way that it can protect and harm because Wismar is not written in the history of Guyana's textbooks but it exists in the memory of certain Guyanese in a way that might not be very beneficial to us it's very charged um, this episode of ethnic cleansing that hasn't been written into the history it exists as memory and I'm not sure that it's a memory that helps it's a memory that sustains well, you know, this is what this is a this is a conversation for a glass of wine. But if you think about the way the Germans have dealt with memory in the Holocaust, they could choose to say this is a national shame. Let's bury it and pretend it never happened. Or they could go head on and commemorate the lives lost. And and they've decided to go head on because the point of this is to never let it be forgotten, mm -hmm. and to and so that when it appears again, which it's appearing. <laughs> They can say, we've been here, we remember this, we will not allow it. That's right. your best defense. Well, Guyanese have chosen amnesia. <laughs> well, not just Guyanese. That's the, the common strategy is to, is to not remember. But amnesia is not really amnesia, actually. It just means that private memories are nursed. Competing memories are nursed because they're two narratives. The point is that the official story does not give a space for what you're talking about. But in a generation or two it will be lost, right? What they're creating a way for these memories to go, to go away in the long term. <laughs> in, an, in an interview a few years ago, the newly elected president of Guyana, who was in Burnham's army, um, told me that history is not actually very helpful and that the truth often doesn't lead to reconciliation. On its own, it doesn't necessarily have to. It's just words, right? But it's what we do with that. That brings us to the end of this episode of the History Watch podcast series, Finding the Caribbean Kuli Woman, History, Power and Memory, in which I was in conversation with Gayatra Bahadur of Rutgers University. For links and references related to today's podcast, please see the podcast notes. The History Watch podcast series is coordinated by Dr. Audra Dipti. To learn more about the History Watch Project, visit us at historywatchproject.com. Thanks for tuning in. Goodbye.